And if you uh, don't have a bulletin with the notes in it, there are extras. So if, if you don't have one, raise your hand. Mary may give you one. If you missed um, the last message that we did on grace, I am going to be building from there. And um, just so you know, if you miss any of them on our website, you can go and listen to all mine, all Keith's, all of the special speakers. So um, F- the uh, website's right here in the uh, bulletin. It's actually a pretty professional-looking website. Next time you see Chelsea Cullen, just give her a hug because she did a lot of work on that thing, and, and so did Keith. So you can listen to our messages right there. Download them like podcasts. Um, so let's open with a word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, God, I pray that your words will be spoken here. All that matters, God, is that uh, your word is true and that uh, you can use any speaker, no matter who they are, God. I, I pray that your words will be speaking, spoken truthfully here today and that um, people's, people's hearts will be open to what you have for them. We're all here today because you have us here, God. So I pray that each one of us will take something from it today. In your name, amen. So you can open to Luke 15. As you're going there, though, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little bit different today. So I'm going to start you with a story. Some people like stories, some people don't, but we're going to start with a story. So this is a story about a Christian family in a small community that runs a successful farm and business and has for several generations. I think we can probably relate to that. I think there's a few of those families in this town. So while they are not rich, their land and livestock and barns and trucks and equipment and crops hold a great deal of value. They are well respected in their church and in the community. The family employs many people from the community and many depend on them for their livelihood. The father holds a leadership, a leadership position in both the church and the community and is well respected for his kindness, wisdom, fairness, honesty, and integrity. But one day, one of the sons in this family decided he was fed up with this life that he seemed destined for. He didn't want to be a farmer, and he didn't want to run this farm with his brother who treated him like a child. He viewed his father as out of touch with reality, as someone whose out-of-date ideas and standards were weak and useless. He found that he almost hated his father and would prefer that maybe he die sooner than later so he could sell off this meaningless farm. This hatred got to a point where all he could think about was leaving this pathetic town and this ridiculous family. But he had no money of his own, and he didn't want to leave without getting what was due him. So he rehearsed what he would say to his father, and one night he got up the courage to, at dinner, to say, Dad, I know this might upset you, but I am not happy here. I don't want to be a farmer, and I don't want to live in your shadow. I want to make my own way in this world. I want to be able to have some fun because life isn't just about work like you think it is. I want to be able, um, while this life might work for you guys, I want something different. I want to travel and experience what this world has before I settle down someplace. But in order to do this, I need what's coming to me and I can't wait. I need it now. Why should I have to? I don't want to be on this farm anyway. 
Let my brother run this place while you're gone, but let me have what's mine now. This family sat in stunned silence, each one looking to the father for his reaction. The look on his face was hard to read. People seemed to hold their breath, waiting for some type of angry eruption fitting the insult that the son had just given. They all knew it went against everything that this father had tried to teach this family. The son was was prepared for this and already had his bags packed anyway. But finally, the father said, Give me a week to make the arrangements so I can give you what you're asking for. Gasps of shock were heard around the table as the father went back to eating. The older brother slammed his drink on the table and stormed off while their mother tried to hide their tears, her tears. During the next week, the father did as he said he would. He sold off a third of the land that had been in his family for over a hundred years. He sold a third of his cows and the equipment and the trucks. Due to the expediency in which he had to sell, he lost, on most, he lost money on most of what he sold. This caused a huge stir in the community, in the community and the church. The other farmers couldn't believe what his, this father was doing because it didn't make any fiscal sense to them, and he had always been so wise. The church couldn't believe that this father would allow such selfishness and arrogance in his son. The gossip was everywhere. What was this father thinking? Had he lost his mind? No father would take such an insult from his son so lightly. Many of their neighbors and friends encouraged the father to just condemn the son and stop this madness. This business that his family had built over generations was being greatly reduced over one seemingly senseless act. As the week came to a close, the father handed over the money to his youngest son, who was eager to leave town by now. The people of the town who had always treated him very well now confronted him angrily every time they saw him. He didn't care, though. He was getting out, and he had what was due him, and he would be free of this place and his father. So he took the money from his father, and wordlessly the two parted. The son got as far from that town as he could, to a place where no one knew his or his father's name, a place where any type of lifestyle was acceptable and where he could experience the world like he had hoped. For the next few years, the son spent the money on anything that made him happy. He threw parties to impress the people he thought were important. His life was full of every form of of fun that was offered, and he loved it. Soon he started to get into a little bit of trouble. He spent a little time in jail for fights at these parties and was caught with drugs on several occasions. He got a girl pregnant and, and even forced her to terminate that pregnancy. He was drunk more often than he was sober, and he began to burn through his money much faster than he had planned. During this time in his area, most of the businesses began to fail, and his friends all had to move on. And he found that he had no prospects and no job. He started to feel a little desperate. Finally, he found a farmer that needed some help shoveling manure. The farmer did not like the look of this skinny young man with the attitude, but felt some obligation to help him. He gave the son, this young man the jobs that he knew he would hate in the hopes that he would just move on. Several weeks went by and the young man was more miserable than he had ever been. He spent most of his money on the drugs he was now addicted to, but it was never enough and the withdrawal symptoms started. 
As he sat in the stench with these pigs in the manure, feeling sicker than he had ever felt, he thought about what must have gone wrong. He thought about where he was and why he was so hungry. He began to think about his father and who his father was. He thought about how his father treated the lowest employees that shoveled manure. They were never hungry, even though he didn't have to pay them or take care of them any better than anyone else. It was during this time of desperation that he made a decision. He would return to his hometown and work for his father. He would show everyone that he could make amends for the damage he had done to his family. He would show everyone that he could turn it around and he would repay the money to his father. He would live in town and do whatever it took for as long as it took to be right with his father again. He would earn back all the respect and would endure all the criticisms that the community would have for him as a penance for what he had done. So the son again prepared a speech for his father as he began to travel home. The trip home took much longer as he had no car and only bus fare for half the trip. So he had to hitch rides. As his symptoms of withdrawal continued though, he continued to, his appearance continued to deteriorate and people were less willing to give him a ride. He spent many nights sleeping outside and walking, which gave him time to think about what he would say to his father. Late one afternoon, he finally approached his hometown, walking on his own tired, aching feet. He was nervous, although it was clear no one recognized his much-altered appearance. He prepared himself for his father's denial and knew he would have to prove himself. As he reached the edge of his father's property, he was still several miles from home and began to look for a place to sleep for the night as he was too tired to go on. A loud cry brought him out of his own head, and he looked around. A ways up the road, a figure was running toward him and shouting. He knew he was in trouble now. Certainly, one of his father's employees had spotted him and was coming to give him some of what he deserved. But as the figure rapidly approached, he realized it was not an employee. It was his father. He had never seen his father run like this. His heart sank. Not only was he going to reject him, but he was going to send him away. But as he neared, the young man saw the tears on his father's face, and they seemed to be tears of joy. His father kept running until the two met in a huge hug, and his father clapped his son on the back, and they laughed and they cried over each other. Suddenly, the son's thoughts of saving and redeeming himself turned into a much greater emotion. He realized how much he had hurt his father. He jumped right into his speech. Father, he said, I have done, what I have done is unforgivable, and I do not deserve to be called your son. Please, just let me work for you. Give me the jobs that no one else wants. Let me try to make it. But the father cut him off and said, Come quickly, we must get you home. And he threw his weakened son's arm over his shoulder and helped him the rest of the way. As they reached the porch, the father lowered his exhausted son into a chair and called for some of the workers. Quick, he said, go into town and buy all the best steak you can find and let everyone know there's going to be a huge celebration here tonight. Make sure you buy the best suit of clothes that will fit my son. He turned to his son and said, tomorrow we will go to the bank and we will set it up so you have access to the family accounts again so you can get whatever you need. Then he ran off to prepare for the party. The son got cleaned up as best he could and couldn't really believe what was happening. 
Soon the party began, and there was so much food, and the father was so overjoyed that it was hard for those, for those that attended to still be upset with the son. After about an hour, the older brother, who had been plowing all day, approached the house. He could not believe his eyes. His brother, who looked like a bag of bones, was sitting in the middle of this celebration that his father was clearly throwing for him. His father spotted the older brother and ran out to meet him, shouting, Your brother is home. Come and celebrate with me. But the older brother refused. He said, I have been loyal to you, and I have stayed here all this time while my brother has been gone. I worked hard for you, and I tried to make it. I tried to make back what he lost, this family. I did all that you expected of me, even when your actions seemed ridiculous. We've heard about some of the things he did. Don't you remember when he went to jail? Don't you remember the girl who showed up here after he hurt her? I mean, look at him. He is obviously an example of all that is wrong in this world, and yet you don't throw parties like this for me. The father begged him to come in. Son, please come to the party. You have always been with me, and, I, and all that I have is yours. But your brother has been lost these years and is finally found. Come and rejoice with me. Come and celebrate his return. I love my sons more than anything, and I will gladly take on their shame if it means that we no longer have to be apart. So why, why am I telling you this story? <clears throat> Certainly not to show off my writing skills. That was a little bit painful to read in front of an audience. Um, and certainly not to try to improve on a parable that Jesus gave to people that was extremely effective and has been for a long time. There's no improving on it. But I'm telling you this story because I wanted to show you what Jesus was doing when he told this parable in Luke 15. This parable that's broken into three stories to get the same point across, that God the Father treats us this way. First of all, to leave his sheep to go to find just one sheep. And then the next story he tells is a woman who has a coin that's worth like half a year's wage. And she goes to find that. So the, the importance goes up from a sheep to a coin. And then it's a father who's lost not really one son, but two sons. And what that means. And what the, how the father treats that. He was telling this to a group that included these Pharisees. These Pharisees who thought they had everything all together. And these Pharisees who thought that you lived by works. They had a list of rules for themselves that they had to abide by. To the point, I think I said this last time, to the point if you sat on a bench that someone unclean had sat on, there was a purification process that took like four days. So we're talking about very rigorous rules. And he's saying to these people, look, this isn't how the Father, this isn't how God the Father looks at humans. This isn't how he does it. I'm the Son of God. Listen to me first because I'm going to tell you about my Father and how he really is. And so he's telling them something that in their culture sounded kind of ridiculous. You know, this story to us, when you don't know any context, sounds a little bit like a Hallmark movie. You know, the son has to work, he wants to come back, he wants to work really hard and make everything better, and everyone lives happily ever after. But we're going to spend the rest of today looking at what I hope this story did for us for our culture a little bit. What was the cultural context? Why were these people so upset by this story? 
Sounds like a really nice story. So turn to Luke 15 if you haven't already. And the top of your notes has some review from last week. Or the last time I preached, two weeks ago. Um, and it's got some clear points about this one parable that's broken into three stories and the parts that the God the Father plays throughout it. We're going to focus now on verse 11 through the end, and this is the parable of the lost sons. Follow along as I read it. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, the younger son uh, not long after that, the younger son got all together, all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For his, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So we're going to talk mostly about the older son next week. Um, so we're going to, we're going to dive into these, this, this section first. So we're going to just go right through this. You've got spaces underneath each, underneath each heading to write your own notes about why this was so culturally, it sounded insane to these people. The first thing is the son's request. In this, people, in this culture, you didn't talk about inheritance before your father died. You, it was a, a taboo topic. You certainly did not talk about it while your father was around. You don't really do that now either. You don't tell your father, hey, you know, what's in your will today? I'd like to know. Give me a little update. You don't really do that. But in this culture, it was considered not just um, rude. It was considered maybe you're not part of the family anymore if you're so worried about the inheritance. So they took it very, very seriously. So the son here is sending a clear message. Dad, I don't really care about you. I don't really care about what this is going to mean for you or for the family. I want what's mine right now. So his attitude is one of selfishness and immorality that they would not accept. And to be honest, we probably wouldn't accept this either. He was saying to his father, pretty much, I wish you were dead. That's how the father in this culture would have taken it. I wish you were dead. Why, why don't you get on with it, man? I need what I need right now, and I'm headed out. So next up is, what are the implications for the father? In this culture, he decides 
to divide the estate between his two sons, actually. That's what the text says. He divides it between his two sons. And he may have had this land in his family since Jacob. I mean, we're talking about a thousand years, possibly. So this, they, didn't, they didn't change the size of their land like we do. We don't just, they didn't buy huge parts of land. They had what they had. Um, and to do this, he would have to sell some of that land that has never been sold since it's been in his family. So the only cases in this culture where you got any control over any part of your dad's stuff was he was saying to you, here's some responsibility. I want you to take care of this portion. He still has all the control over what happens with it, but he's giving you responsibility. He's trying to teach you what's going to happen next, which, which, which makes sense because you're going to have to take it over one day. But this son isn't asking for that. He's saying, I want to cash out. I want to cash out. There's, there's no 401k to go cash out in this culture. He's selling stuff. He probably had to sell quickly. Again, which like in the other story, usually when you sell stuff quickly, anybody who's a farmer knows you sell stuff when the time is right if you can. If you have to sell stuff quickly, you don't make money like you should. So he's in kind of a, the father's making sort of shameful decisions. The people are looking at him like he's a fool at this point. The leaders in this village would have excommunicated the son on their own, whether the father did or not. The leaders of that village would have said, head out. It's good that you're leaving. We don't want to ever see you here again. You're a, you're a stain on this community. No matter what your father does, you're a stain on this community. Get out and don't come back. Because the alternative was he could stay and be stoned. Like, he could stay and be stoned or he could leave. They were excommunicating him. <clears throat> we don't do things quite so, uh, quite so strongly anymore, but if you go to the Middle East, a lot of these customs are still the same today. You don't do this. So Jesus is telling this parable to a group of people who probably at this point are a little bit slack-jawed. They're saying, what's going on? Why are you telling us this story? Why are you telling us this story about this father who clearly doesn't know what he's doing? You know, what's the point of this? So next up, we, we see the attitude of the older brother. Now, in this culture, again, whose job it would be to make amends between the father and the younger son would be the older brother. Older brother's about to become the head of the household, so it's up to him to go to the younger son and say, well, we're going to figure this out. You're not, you're not making me, you're, you're taking away my inheritance too. He's selling for less. My inheritance is going to be smaller because of you. And what are you doing to dad? He's going to be shamed. How do you think that makes him feel? And so he's going to go to the young, he's supposed to in this culture go there. But his response in the text is non-existent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything about it. So it's kind of a no skin off his back. Well, I guess I get what's mine now too. It doesn't sound too bad. He might not be going anywhere, but he isn't showing his father how he loves him either. Now, the son goes out and totally blows it. We can kind of understand this part pretty clearly, right? The son just goes out and blows that money. He goes to a different place. He has to try to impress those people to become part of their culture. He blows that money. And then when there's a famine, his friends kind of leave him because there's no American Red Cross that's going to come in and help these guys during their famine. 
That's not how it was. So these guys took care of their own families and they kind of shut everything else down. But because of some other sort of cultural obligation, this guy goes to one farmer and he plants himself and he kind of glues himself there and says, I'm not going anywhere until you, until you give me some work. And this guy feels obligated to give him some work. But he gives the young Jewish boy some work that no young Jewish boy should ever do, which is go deal with the pigs. If you're a traditional Jewish family, what, what, is, what are pigs to you? They're, they're unclean. They're unclean. He's not even supposed to be dealing with that stuff. What he's doing is he's saying, telling him, I'll give you some work, but it's this. And if you don't like it, you can, you can move on. It's like in the county. I work for the county. It's impossible to fire anybody in the county. You have to be really, really bad to get fired in the county. So they just, if they need to get rid of you, they move you someplace where you hate the work. So you'll leave on your own. This is what he's doing to the son. Go deal with those pigs. And hoping he just kind of moves on as soon as possible. He's looking at the pods these pigs are eating, which have almost no nutritional value. So he's at the bottom at this point. That's the bottom. This, these pods did not look appetizing. And he's saying, I'm hungry enough. I think I might try to eat these because no one else has helped me. No one else is giving me anything. So he's hit that rock bottom. He's hit this place of, of desperation. This is so often true when we come to God. We just hit that desperation point. A lot of times, it, for a lot of times, it can be that things are falling apart in your life and you've hit desperation and he's drawing you back. He's drawing you to himself. But sometimes it's just that everything you thought was so important and everything you put all your time and your energy into, it turned out to be meaningless. And so you hit a place where you're like, I don't know what life means anymore. You're, you're morally in a place of desperation. There is desperation when we are separate from God and the power of His will being fulfilled in our lives. If, once you've seen that, once you've seen God's will fulfilled in your life, it's hard, to, it's hard when you're not having it anymore. All right, so the son starts to think about his father, and he thinks about the man that, that he is, and the workers that work for him and how they're treated. And they're, they're fed well. We're not talking about his, his foreman. We're not talking about the hired workers that are there every day. We're talking about those guys who sit in like the Lowe's parking lot hoping that you'll hire them for the day. That's what this type of worker in that culture was. They just hoped you'd hire them for one day. And the text is telling us that the father even took care of those people. He didn't have to but he made sure they were fed. So the, the son just starts to think about who his father is. Some of you may have kids that have fallen astray. Sons, daughters that are away from God. And do you know what's going to bring them back when they think about you? It isn't going to be that they think about all the times you told them what they did wrong. They probably know what they did wrong. It's going to be when they think about how you showed them kindness and forgiveness and grace when they didn't deserve it. That's the, that's the seeds that are in our hearts when we think about somebody. And this is what he's doing. He's thinking about his father. And he's thinking about who that father is. And that's what's drawing him back. He's thinking about how loving his father is. 
This world is harsh and it's full of sin and it's full of hurt. And so when people hit a place of complete desperation, sometimes this is what brings them back. What they thought was silly in you. You know, how silly you are, Dad. You do everything so wrong. Why are you wasting your time on this and that and this and that? When they're in desperation, they're going to long for that. And that's how we are as sinners. That's how we are when we're, when we're longing for Christ. I want that. Because honestly, what this world has for me is kind of harsh. It's kind of unpleasant. I don't, I don't want to deal with it. God's love is greater than that. And when you start to think about God as not just somebody who's upstairs waiting to send that lightning bolt for you, and you start thinking about him as someone who has, as part of himself is full of grace and love, You'll run to him rather than run away from him when you're doing everything wrong. You don't, want to, you don't have to run away from him when everything's going wrong. That's the time when you can run to him. He's the only one, to be honest, even your parents might not treat you well all the time. You can run to them and they may still reject you. He's the only one who's not going to reject you. He's the only one who doesn't send you packing, even though he's the only one who could. He's the only one who can judge you. We all judge each other really well, but to be honest, it doesn't matter. We're not going to all get to heaven and say, well, Jeremy judged you this way, and so this is your house in heaven. It's not going to work that way. All that matters is God and his judgment. So the son starts to plan. And this is, he plans this because this is the only way he knows how to plan. He starts to think of how can I make it up? He's looking at the same things these Pharisees are looking at. If you're going to be redeemed, you do these things. If you're going to be redeemed, you better be all right on all these lists of things, and you're probably still not going to be okay with us. But that's how he thinks, and he starts to plan, what am I going to say? This is, this is, this is an interesting thing. It's, this is not how Jesus normally tells a parable, with getting right inside that person's mind, and this is what he's going to plan to say. But he's doing it for a reason. He's showing these Pharisees, this is the way you think. And this is how the Father's going to respond to that. So, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's only one thing that's ever happened that's ever going to make you right with God. And it is not any of your works trying to earn that grace. And this is what we're going to take from the story today, I hope. I hope. It's the key part of the story. He's preparing to earn his righteousness and he heads home. What the Father does the rest of the story redefines, should redefine what the Pharisees think because this is opposite to everything they've ever done. And I hope it redefines some for us. So the Father sees him a long way off. Why does he see him a long way off, do you think? Because he was looking for him. He was looking for this son after all this time. He was, he's looked down that street hoping there'd be a speck at the end of that road for a long time. He sees him a long way off. It's not happenstance that he sees him a long way off. This selfish, worthless son that has no redeeming qualities that cost the father so much. He loves his son so much he's still out there looking for him every single day. What's that tell you about the father's love? If Jesus is telling us today, this is how the father views people who are lost, what does that tell you about the father's love? He's looking for it. He's looking for you. So, 
Next thing that happens is he runs. Now, old guys don't do a lot of running anyway, even in our culture. But in this culture, if you were over 25, you did not run because you were wearing a robe. And if you were to see a man's ankles exposed, the cultural equivalent, the cultural equivalent to that would be being doing the rest of this sermon in my underwear. You guys would all be really uncomfortable with that. And they would, that, that's, but that's how they viewed just seeing an ankle. And so it was shameful. It was shameful to just see an ankle. This guy, to run, has to hike, him, hike it right up and run. You think he's worried about his shame at that point? You think he cares what anybody else thinks about that? I don't think he does. So he runs. And he comes to his son, who is filthy. He's filthy. He's a mess. He probably doesn't smell good. He's even considered culturally uh, unclean. But he didn't take the hose to him before he kissed him. He didn't take the hose to him before he hugged him. He hugged and kissed that son in the state he was in. And that state was ugly. That state was the ugliest you can think of. And he kissed him anyway. And this, this just gets better anyway. He throws his own robe around him. When he says, go get the best robe, that's his robe. He throws his robe around him. There's a lot of picture here of God throwing his robe of righteousness around us. What's the Bible say about our best righteousness? It's filthy rags. We don't, it doesn't do us very much good. But his righteousness, that tells everybody around what? What's he telling his servants? You, he's accepted. I don't care what you guys think. I'm the father. I just accepted him back. Now start to deal with it. This is how we're going to treat him. It's amazing. The next thing he does, uh, he makes sure there's shoes on his feet. And he gives him a ring. That ring is not just some pretty ring because they liked to wear rings back then. This is the signet ring. This is the one they stamped into wax. This is the one they call, came into town and when they bought stuff because they had the signet ring, it went on the account. This kid who made how many good financial decisions? None. As soon as he comes back, the father says, here's the money back. Here's the money back. You haven't even gotten cleaned up, but here's the money back already. I trust you. You know what? You're going to do better now. You're going to do better now. <clears throat> the son tries to get his speech out, and he prepared a very nice one about he's going to make everything back. And he's going to do everything it takes and all that. We, we like those speeches, right? In a movie, that sounds really good. Somebody is picking themselves up by the bootstraps. We like that. We want them to have to do that. But his father just keeps ignoring it and interrupting him. And the son is overwhelmed by this grace. Eventually, he just shuts up. He stops trying to say it. He doesn't know what else to say anyway. He sees his father and realizes this is where he wants to be. Because of this grace that I've been shown, why would I want to be anywhere other than right here with my father? This is where I belong, with my father. He wants to be close to this father that doesn't respond to him with what he deserves. Because what he deserved was awful, and what he got was grace and understanding and forgiveness and mercy. And he couldn't comprehend it. And the father's demonstrating for that entire village that his shame is on the father. 
He just took his shame, that son's shame, and he took it for the son. And he said, We're gonna, you guys are all going to come celebrate with me. And it's my celebration. And you're going to deal with it. And he's now part of my family again. Because I took his shame. If you want to make trouble for me, fine. But look at him. He's dressed up again and he's fine and he's my son. And you're all going to come see. If my son came back after all that time, I would... I, I thought about this a lot this morning. I would really struggle with, I'm going to throw a party for all those people who excommunicated him and have to explain myself. He didn't explain himself at all. He just said, here he is. He's my son. I'm celebrating. We're going to eat some good food. And it's going to be hard to ignore because I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're going to have to just deal with me because my son's back. This is what the Father... This is what God the Father does for me and he does for you. And he's, he took that shame by, sending, by making a way for us. He sent Christ to be crushed for us. He took the shame by sending a part of the Godhead to deal with it. That's how full of love and mercy he is. When I started out, this, when I started out talking about grace, I, I was so afraid that I'd talk too much about grace and you guys would never worry about any of the bad things you do. But it's not about that. You don't respond to God out of he's up there tapping his toe waiting for you to finally do the right thing. It's just not, it's not how it is. You have an inheritance and you have a safe place forever even though you don't deserve it. And you can approach God with vigor even in the worst of times, even when things are falling apart for you, you still can. Even when you're coming back saying, God, I did wrong. I did the wrong thing. He's not approaching you in that bad mood. He hasn't decided that today's the bad mood day. He knew you were going to do what you did, and he sent his son to be crushed anyway. So he just ignores these things that we put up. We all have legalisms. We talked about that last time. Some of them are obvious legalisms. Some of them are just in our heads and we don't share them with anybody else. He's ignoring your legalisms. And he's ignoring mine. That's hard to accept. I like thinking of righteousness as these are the things that make somebody righteous. But no one is righteous. There's no one here that can be. And he's ignoring when you just decide what's righteousness. He doesn't need it. It doesn't do him any good. You're not growing the kingdom at all doing that. So accept his grace. Respond to him by that grace. Stop worrying about how you look to those who are around you. Stop doing things just because Christians do or don't do these set of things based on the culture you grew up in. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. Christians don't do that. In fact, when they do, as other Christians, we look down on them. How could they possibly dance at a wedding? Christians don't dance. You think... You think God's worried about you dancing at a wedding? Start acting like your Father in Heaven did everything even though you, did, you didn't deserve it. He did everything for you even though you didn't deserve it. Respond to Him in that way and it'll change you. You won't worry about who smokes or who drinks. You won't worry about even who's a Democrat or Republican. I know that's hard to imagine, right? But you're not going to worry about it because you're going to be so focused on the face of God. And you'll have something that you want to share with everybody else. When you stop worrying about that list of things to do and you start to think about grace 
in this way, I hope it changes how you view other people. Because it doesn't leave you in good standing to treat them a certain way. All you should be worried about is the face of God and responding to Him because you love Him. You want to be close to Him. You want Him to be your Father. And so, why would you do anything that displeases Him? Not, why would you do anything that displeases Him because He's going to give you a flat tire tomorrow because you did it. No, I, I want to please Him because I love Him so much because no one else in the universe has ever treated me like this. He did this when I didn't deserve it and I want to be near Him forever because of that. I hope, there's a, I, I hope that you see a difference between that and sometimes how we live. I struggle with this because I like my list too. I'm not just calling you guys out because I think you all have lists. I like my list of things that I can judge other people by that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. But God doesn't need it, and you spend time on that, you'll be miserable, and you'll make everybody else miserable. Don't focus on that. Focus on His face. Learn, what, learn who he is, what he is, and what he expects from you, and how to get closer to him. We'll close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this amazing story that you gave us. That your son, who knows you better than anyone else, told so that we would see who you really are. That you are full of grace. God, I pray that people here and myself as well will respond to that grace. That we won't run and hide when we do something wrong, God, but that we'll come admit our sins because we love you. We want to be close to you at all times. That's where we're most comfortable, not the other way around. I pray that anybody here who's had something tugging on their heart for a change, God, I pray that you'll move on them and, and help them to see that this is where they should be. Draw them to yourself, God, and I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that they'll consider this relationship better than anything this world has to offer. That if they can be close to you, that's better than anything else. I pray that you will be in our lives this week and show us grace this week. In your name, amen. And you are dismissed.